This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and on this episode of Behind the Headlines, we're talking about the aftermath from the Midland flooding. On this episode, we're talking to Garrett Ellison, Isis simpson Mersha, and Katie Boomer, who have all been covering this from the onset. This disaster is is probably one of the worst dam failures in Michigan, uh, you know, flash flood incidents. The community, the people that are still there and helping each other out are doing the best they can and definitely have a positive spirit. They're keeping a sense of humor because they all say, what are we supposed to do? Like, we just have to move on. We have to hit the next step. We have to rebuild our lives. There's no other option than to start over. Uh, a lot of the residents are saying are singing the same song is that um, regardless if they had flood insurance, um, you know, they're really not getting any help from it from their um, home insurance. Welcome back to this episode of Behind the Headlines. We are joined today by Isis simpson Mersha, Garrett Ellison and Katie Boomer. And we're going to be talking about the aftermath from this 500 year flood. And my co-host, as always, Vice President of Content, John Heiner. And John, before I say hello to you, I want to say congratulations to you and your team, as over the weekend, you guys picked up four Emmys, which is is just incredible. So I wanted to start by saying congratulations and then say, how are you, my friend? I am very well, Eric. It's always nice to start your your week off with the glow uh, of an Emmy Award. And uh, now I'm going to, you know, on to the Grammy, Oscar and Tony uh, so I can be like John Legend and yes. be a go. Because you know, so. often when I think of John Legend, I think of you. So we're we're on the same page. So, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hear me sing, my friend. Uh, I I will say one of our one of our guests today, uh, Garrett Ellison, who's here with us from our public interest team, uh, statewide reporter on environmental and, and other issues for the state, uh, had a hand um, in one of our Emmys that we got was for PFAS contamination and. Garrett is the one who's been making this a household name for years now in Michigan, these forever chemicals. And uh, his expertise on that episode, um, and also Nestle Water, he weighed in on Nestle Water. Uh, he was on camera, actually. And, Eric, there's actually a fifth Emmy um, that we shared in with Detroit Public TV for collaboration on forever chemicals. And Garrett provided a lot of background reporting for that. And also was on camera for that. So four and a half or five Emmys will round up. <laughs> That's awesome. Garrett, Garrett, congratulations. Oh, thank you. And uh, congratulations to everyone else who worked hard on that stuff. That was uh, it was certainly not all my doing. That's for sure. Well, we also today have with us from uh, our coverage team in Saginaw and Bay City, Isis uh, simpson Mersha and Katie Boomer. Uh, Isis is a reporter. Katie's photographer. And uh, we have them together here with Garrett today to talk about uh, a big story that wasn't coronavirus in Michigan this spring. Um, you know, we, we are mainstream media tends to be uh, a breaking news driven medium. Uh, what's in the headlines? What's trending today? What people are talking about? But sometimes I think you have an event that merits going back uh, and taking a deeper look at something that really, truly was so rare and so devastating that it's going to have long-term effects 
for both Michigan and Michigan policy, but the people who lived through it too. And I'm talking about the 500 year flood event that happened up in the Midland area when we had a dam failure. We knew it was going to rain and we knew water levels were high. So our team was on alert there. And the team, the people we have on the podcast today covered it from several aspects. Uh, when the dam burst, Katie, our photographer, was there as it was basically being breached. Um, she took some amazing photographs of water with basically nowhere to go. So it was raging through this dam. And that was just prior to the dam uh, failing. And then the aftermath, uh, I'm going to let them talk about it, but the devastating uh, images that we saw of people's lives that went from, you know, one day you had very uh, uh, coveted lakefront property and the next day you lived on a mud flat or even worse downstream, you didn't have a house. And so there's a lot of aftermath to that. So I, I welcome our guests today. Uh, thank you for joining us. And I think I'd like to start by just talking to Garrett in general, uh, there's some background on the dam that failed, but also there's larger issues with dams in Michigan. And, and Garrett, I know you've been following that for years. How did, was this dam failure, the Edenville dam failure, emblematic of issues that Michigan's facing with dams in general? Uh, well, um, Michigan, like uh, many other states, has got a many what are called high hazard dams where you know if there's a failure it's got the potential to uh, you know cause property damage um uh, or you know kill people really um floods can be incredibly dangerous um the thing with edenville is that it was also in a really poor condition um and it hadn't the the federal regulators FERC the Energy and Regulatory Commission had been trying to get the uh, dam owner, uh, Lee Mueller, uh, um, a guy out of Nevada, um, to upgrade his spillway so it could handle a historic flood of the magnitude that we saw. And he, he just sort of kind of pl uh, pled poor uh, for quite, you know, for many years. And eventually FERC yanked uh, Edenville's license to generate hydropower. Um, you know, was subsequently kicked oversight uh, to the state of Michigan, which has different standards, not quite uh, as stringent as the federal government. And um, the state uh, environmental regulators took more of a, an emphasis on, you know, the dam's uh, impact on the aquatic uh, ecosystem around um, Wixom Lake um, initially. So, you know, there's a, but when this flood happened, there was already a big legal fight in the courts over between the state of Michigan and uh, Boyce Hydropower, which is the name of the company that owns the dam. And so this was, this, you know, <laughs> in some ways the dam was a bit of a disaster waiting to happen. Um, and then, you know, we got this really, this unique uh, weather event called an atmospheric river, um, mm. you know, on May 17th through the 19th, dropped a ton of rain, uh, in Michigan, up to five inches in some places in the Titabawassee River watershed, um, which is where, you know, the, <laughs> which is where the dam is. Um, and so th this, you know, was one of those instances of where you've got a ton of rainfall falling in the watershed. You've got a dam that doesn't have the uh, spillway capacity to handle, um, you know, the historic 500 year flood. And, you know, we saw what happened. Well, Garrett, 
Can you go back and tell me that atmospheric term again? An atmix, atmospheric river uh, is what I've heard it described as. It's a, Essentially, it's a huge um, stream of moisture coming up from the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and it was it was not like heavy, re- intense rain. It was several days of of steady rainfall. Um, and it sounds like there was a uh, I think a tropical storm, Alberto maybe that had some uh, potential um, effect on on the weather patterns or over the continental U.S. at the time. So, you know, we were just getting. Um, we got a lot of rainfall, and it's already been an incredibly um, wet uh, three to five year period in Michigan. We're at record wetness, uh, over that period, according to, uh, um, national oceanic and atmospheric administration. And, you know, our groundwater, uh, tables are up. The state is soaked, uh, like a sponge already. We've got flooding along the great lakes coasts. Water levels there are rising. We've got flooding along a lot of inland lakes. And so water issues in Michigan, particularly, um, you know, out there in the environment, um, you know, they're, they're kind of paramount right now. So this in news, we often have a disaster, you know, a crash, uh, you know, a news event that just, you got to respond to and run out to, but this was sort of a slow motion breaking news event. We, we knew the rain was coming. We knew the water level, water had nowhere to go. And we knew for days, we'd been talking about this when we saw the weather report. So we were able to respond quickly um obviously here from the perspective you're talking about there are years and years of backstory on this between the state and the dam owners and FERC and I mean it wasn't taken care of in the past so there was nothing that could be done you know the week ahead of time when we knew the rain was coming and the water table was high I'm someone who's driven through that area many many times and that's not a huge dam and it's a pretty placid looking bit of water but then you're reminded how powerful water is when there's too much of it. And uh, to that to that point, I'd like to kick it over to Katie Boomer, who was uh, dispatched out to that area when the flood warnings had gone out. People in Midland and downstream and had been warned, uh, and then they started to move towards evacuation. But that's Katie. That's when you got on the scene. And why don't you describe some of the things you saw? Your images were were just amazing. From that, it looked like a mini Niagara Falls before that dam burst. So, well, all day that Tuesday, when we were getting all that rain, I was out there, out in Edenville, up in Sanford, downtown Midland. I was kind of just watching as the day went on. Um, I headed home around five, and then I got the alert at like 6.30, the dam burst. <laughs> so it was immediately back out there. Um, Cole and I went out there, but they had already started blocking off the roads into Edenville for obvious reasons. I mean, they were evacuating everybody out of there. So our next strategy was to go to the Sanford Dam because all of the water was flowing down to that dam and that one was next in line for imminent failure. So we went out there and People were already starting to evacuate out of there, but they didn't get the final notice that they needed to leave yet. So we went up there and the water was just about gushing over the dam. It was just below it. And there was all sorts of debris, like pontoon boats, huge trees. Like it was insane how many, how much was just pressed up against this dam, including the water that was already over like, 
overflowing the entire downtown Sanford. Um, roads were blocked off. You couldn't get really anywhere. And so while I was there for, we were probably there for maybe 20 minutes before the police told us that we had to get out of there. It was going to be no doubt imminent failure. The town was going to be underwater. And so we were sent out of there pretty quickly. And um, I followed it many days after that for the aftermath as well. Um, the next day when I went back up there, it you could see like the structure of the Sanford Dam still stood, but the wall along the side was totally overcome with water and the entire village of Sanford Park was underwater. The road was destroyed and then many houses were taken off their foundations. The downtown businesses, majority of them are completely destroyed, if not all of them. And the aftermath was just insane. And to see it one day with a full Sanford Lake to the next day with nothing in it was unreal. You know, you'd mentioned Cole, and that's Cole Waterman, a reporter for us in Bay City. And Eric, I just want to note here that these three reporters or these three journalists are representative of at least a dozen, if not more, uh, journalists who were dispatched from all over, both the local markets. But we had uh, a videographer come up from uh, Grand Rapids to provide some footage. We had Jake Mayer, photographer in Flint, came up. Uh, he was a podcast guest of ours a couple episodes ago. Um, yep. Matter of fact, we interviewed him the day he'd come back from where, like wading out into, you know, right. floodwaters. Yes. So um, this was a real team effort. And uh, Katie's representative, these these three are representative of the people who've all pitched in on all aspects uh, of the flood coverage. So I'd like to kick it over to ISIS. Now, ISIS is a reporter and ISIS, you were on the scene uh, several times after um the, the flood, I don't want to say it receded because the flood water all came down to Midland. Um, people were swamped, and we've told some pretty amazing stories of what people went through. As Katie said, Sanford, what the town of Sanford is, was devastated. They're just almost every business was wiped out. But uh, you've, you've talked to a lot of the homeowners too, ISIS. So why don't you tell us from, from your perspective uh, and their perspective, what's this has meant to the families and communities down there? Yeah, John. So Katie and I were actually out there uh, just yesterday visiting Sanford. And um, yeah, the word that just keeps popping up in my head is just like complete devastation. Um, like Katie mentioned, lots of the most of the downtown is just completely um, is gonna be completely wiped away. Um, the buildings or structures that are still partially standing are marked with X's, you know, ready to be um, demolished. Uh, we actually spoke with a, um, a city council person, um, and his home, uh, was literally, you know, just, it's only, it's beams are standing. And thankfully, you know, at some point he renovated the top of his floor to be an apartment and that's where he's living at now, just above his home. Um, but his neighbor directly across from him, his home is completely gone, completely washed away. Wow. Uh, and and so just, we, we rode around and, you know, street corners are just packed with debris, you know, miscellaneous things. Um, you know, there's a, one of their main roadways is just completely destroyed and, you know, just blocks the cement, just misplaced everywhere. 
Um, but one thing that um, is, I guess, pretty impressive and admirable is everyone, they seem to have a positive attitude. You know, everyone's saying, you know, this, uh, you know, organization has helped do this or, you know, we, you know, are still pulling together to make things happen or to clear out our homes. Um, and so that was just really um, inspiring to see. Um, but as you know, you know, the water reached, you know, parts of Saginaw Township as well. Um, and as well as in, uh, in Spalding, um, in Saginaw County. And uh, farmers there had to deal with um, flooding that this time they say affected their crops. And many of them said, you know, floods from years past, they didn't have to worry about that. But this year, you know, they're worried that, you know, they may, won't make a comeback and they won't be able to, um, you know, save what they have. And um, in Saginaw Township, you have people who stayed in shelters for many weeks um, because they lost um, their homes or, you know, they can't stay inside of them. And so many of them uh, borrowed campers from their friends and, and live in their driveways for the time being. I lived in Bay City area, I lived in Auburn between Bay City and Midland for 18 years, worked in Bay City. And what struck me when I moved there is, is people talk about floods like they're rings on a tree. It's like, you know, that'd be, hey, was that the flood of 86 or 96? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like regular events. And so yeah. I was struck by in an article the other day um, about how Midland, somehow they call it the Midland Miracle. Nobody got hurt or killed. And when you saw how, how what it looked like when that flood burst and you see the devastation of what's left, it is pretty amazing that nobody got hurt. But that's because, uh, A, they're, they're in a flood zone and they're used to this kind of emergency planning, But but and they have a good system in place for evacuations. But I will say, even people who are used to floods were thinking, you know, I'll just go up the street, I'll just go up to high ground, or I'll, I'll go upstairs in my house. And this was a different event. This truly was a 500-year flood. And uh, it, there's just, that's a huge news story. And it, it's going to have repercussions for, for many years to come. Let me ask you guys what you're hearing or what you think, because uh, I'm hearing from, from just people who are following this story, uh, you know, neighbors and relatives, because they see these houses that used to be on a lake and they're not anymore. And, you know, boy, my house was worth, you know, 300000 and now it's not. And, you know, are they going to rebuild the dam? Is there any discussion of that? Um, how long would this take? Garrett, do you know from a state perspective of uh, there's a state uh, opinion about this or licensing or what kind of reviews would have to happen? Where does it go from here? John, I uh, couldn't give you any great detail on exactly what has to happen in order for the dam to be rebuilt. I know there's definitely discussion uh, and a desire for that to happen among the people who, <laughs> you know, used to live on a lake. Um but at the same time, the dams are not generally being built anymore in Michigan and in, in many states. They're being removed. Um, and so it's likely that, you know, as, you know, any discussions uh, progress um, on what the future of, you know, Wixom Lake and the Edenville Dam is, is, you know, you're going to have a lot of stakeholders, um, you, you know, stepping in to say, okay, well, <clears throat> you know, is that uh, ecologically the best thing to do? Um, you, you know, it, what is the, what are the implications of, 
of of rebuilding this dam, um, you know, on the wider ecosystem, the Titaboasi Rivershed. You know, do we need these dams? Um, there's a there's a pretty big push, uh, especially coming out of the fisheries um, fisheries management uh, programs at the Michigan DNR and and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, and whatnot to remove uh, dams because they disrupt uh, ecosystems. Um, you know more and and they create riparian conflict <laughs> uh in most for the most part wherever they're located so you know i think what you'll end up seeing is a uh you know conflicting interests uh between the people who live um you know and uh, what used to be former lakefront property and then any anybody else who you know kind of looks at this and goes you know that's unfortunate but uh i don't necessarily know what exactly is the argument beyond my personal property value or your personal property value for rebuilding this dam. Isis, you've spoken to many of the homeowners and their attorneys. What would they like to see happen? And what are you, what are you hearing from them and their discussions with their the attorneys? So uh, yesterday I met with Ben Johnson, an attorney um, out of Detroit, and um, he has filed a mass tort lawsuit um, and right now, it only represents about six um, residents in Midland County, um, but he's planning to add many, many more. Um, and so basically what that lawsuit is asking or is stating is that, um, you know, the dam owners, um, you know, are responsible for what happened and they're looking for compensation in which Vin thinks it could be up to um, in the billions of dollars. Um, and they're also looking um, for, you know, like, what, what is the plan after this happens? You know, like what, you know, how can we make sure this doesn't um, happen again? Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, I feel like uh, a lot of the residents are saying are singing the same song is that um, regardless if they had flood insurance, um, you know, they're really not getting any help from it from their um, home insurance um, companies. Um, and a lot of them were uninsured because they did not live in a floodplain. Uh, so it's you're just saying, you're saying they lived on a lake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so right. Uh, so uh, the the city council person we spoke to yesterday, who who owned a home um, in, in Sanford area, who you know did not have flood insurance? He was given, I think, uh, five thousand dollars from his uh, homeowner's insurance. Uh, something that kind of really wasn't even related to the flooding, but they they called it like backup insurance or something. Um, basically, it's like when your um, when sewage comes up through your pipes and things like that, and you get compensated for that. And he says that a lot of the other residents, though, in the area have only been given $750. And that was just to cover the food that was lost when they lost electricity during everything. Um, and so, I mean, lots of other attorneys from across the state have filed um, uh, mass uh, lawsuits um, looking for compensation and you know, looking to, uh, you know, make things right on their behalf, or residents' behalf. Garrett, is there precedent for the state stepping in to help in any way in these these kind of unusual disasters? Well, I mean, you've got, 
this disaster is is probably one of the worst dam failures in Michigan. Uh, you know, flash flood incidents. It's there's it's it's tough. Uh, there's not a whole lot that the state you know can do. It, it does sort of fall back on uh, you know what type of insurance uh, homeowners did uh, may have may or may not have had. Um, there are some you know, disaster declarations and whatnot that happen. But that tends to, you know, be more for uh, covering the emergency response costs and public costs and, you know, the the, the costs that uh, the wider tax paying uh, public ends up incurring to deal with this stuff. Um, you know, there ends up, you know, when these sorts of things happen, um, people tend to have to resort to litigation in order to make themselves whole because it's just not much in the way of um, uh, structures in place to provide individual compensation. Um, And I think that partly ends up being an ideology thing. Um, You know, uh, there's plenty of sympathy for people who uh, lived on a lake, but at the same time, uh, there's also not a lot of sympathy for people who lived on a lake uh, from people who don't live on a lake. And so that, you know, ends up being a larger sort of uh, <clears throat> debate that uh, comes into focus in the wake of these sorts of things. It boggles my mind, frankly. I can't fathom looking out from your deck that I mean, it was coming into Memorial Day weekend, too. There was your pontoon sitting there. And then uh, a couple of days later, it's out in a mud flat. So it's hard to fathom that, but either way, whether it's the recovery of these people and their lives back to normal or the compensation, we're probably talking about years, right? Oh, definitely. Especially, I mean, especially when it comes to class action, uh, cases, uh, those just take much, much longer. Um, you know, there are, there are class action lawsuits that take, um, you know, years just to get through the initial dispository motions, you know, would you dismiss this case or not? And before you even get into the the discovery phase of, of a lawsuit like that. And so it's just, you know, this is not going to be resolved anytime soon. That's for sure. Well, Katie and Isis, you know, perhaps we can wrap this up by going back to the scene out there and what you've seen. You were just there yesterday. What does it look like? And you said people's attitudes were pretty positive, but What's the, what's the long-term effect for those communities and what does it look like today? Well, yeah, I've been up there probably every week trying to be up there at least a day or two just to reconnect with some of the community members and figure out, you know, what steps they're taking, how, you know, it's been taking a long time. There's one woman I've been talking to who didn't have power in her house for three weeks after the failure. So she was just gutting everything out and, staying in a hotel and then coming back during the day and just waiting for the power to come back on so she can at least get her bathroom set up and just like these little things. But at the same time, they're going through all this devastation and gutting their houses and saving, salvaging what they can. But like Isis had mentioned, it's very much the resiliency of all of these people who have been going through this is amazing. They're are so many volunteers who have jumped in to help them and they're beyond grateful. Um, There's been a lot of items, especially on Facebook. They've been sharing a lot of like free items, like here's a washer and dryer, somebody I'd like to help somebody who was affected by the floods. And there's been a ton of that. And a bunch of people have come together to just gather clothes, all sorts of things like that. And 
but for the when we were out there yesterday many of the people who were affected most that were in the floodplain don't plan on returning because they were affected in the 2017 flood was the most recent one and this one t- mostly wiped out the ones in the floodplain like there are just bricks laid down where the foundation was but no remnants of any type of house there there's mm-hmm. just sometimes there's just a mailbox and a a square of bricks so mm-hmm. it there's a whole neighborhood like that where the floodplain is that's just totally wiped out or there's how there's still a structure there but it's totally off its foundation so mm-hmm. it needs to be demolished but as for the downtown um they're still working on it. The The street itself for the bridge where the Titabawasi goes under is still, I mean, it's going to take, I think he said it was going to be like 17 million to wow. repair that just that section. It was already needed repair. He said before this dam. And now it's just even worse because now it's absolutely not drivable. Um, but the, still the, the community, the people that are still there and helping each other out are doing the best they can and definitely have a positive spirit. They're keeping a sense of humor because they all say, what are we supposed to do? Like, we just have to move on. We have to hit the next step. We have to rebuild our lives. There's no other option than to start over. Well, I want to say to all of you, you've done a fantastic job of keeping MLive readers abreast of these developments and keeping it in the headlines this is a story that even as they clean up the muck and the debris and start rebuilding, uh, it sounds like, Garrett, you might uh, be covering this story for, for years to come from a statewide perspective as well. So go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we're talking 200 and million in damage, uh, public and private property, uh, you know, a, a a mid-sized Michigan city's downtown flooded, villages wiped away. I mean, they're still trying to figure out what type of impact this had on the uh, Superfund uh, cleanup uh, in the Titabawasi uh, downstream of uh, Dow Chemical. Um, you know, this this is definitely, you know, the aftermath um, is, uh, <laughs> you know, still being unpacked for sure. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today on Behind the Headlines. It's a fascinating story and uh, you guys have done great work chronicling this for, for our readers. And thanks for telling some of the stories behind the stories for our listeners today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And there you go. Another episode of Behind the Headlines. Again, if you like the podcast, there's a couple things you can do for John and I. One, you can put the podcast in a playlist on Spotify. If you're listening on iTunes, you can give it a rating and write a review. We would love that. And then finally, if you like it, share it. We'll catch you next week. I'm Eric Halkren. He is John Heiner, and this is Behind the Headlines.